0: Hi, I'm Sam Gear and welcome to Brains Bite Back. Your podcast looking at everything to do with psychology, technology, and our society. As 2020 finally comes to an end, on today's episode, we'll take a look back at some of the best and most insightful episodes of the year. But we also want to hear what you think, so tweet at us at, at thesociable.com or leave us a comment on YouTube to tell us your favorite episode and moments of Brains By Back from 2020. How to become an effective critical thinker. I'd love to know what advice you would give to our listeners in order to effectively analyze information we see on social media.
1: Sure. I'd say, you know, social media has certainly been an accelerant of a phenomena you describe of us sort of locking ourselves into information bubbles, but also of us sort of self-sorting into communities of the like-minded. I think um, there's a a book out uh, close to 20 years ago called The Big Sort about how Americans have moved from most of us living in voting districts where Uh, it's relatively even split between Republicans and Democrats to now a majority and I I would guess you know at this point a vast majority of us live in communities, live in towns, live in neighborhoods, live in houses where our beliefs are really rarely ever challenged and even if we have a minority opinion in a community we can always retreat now to an online community uh, where our opinions um, are never going to be kind of subject to uh, So I think, you know, social media is just the next phase in that, right, because we had cable news outlets that many of which, not all, but many of which exist to support uh, one belief system or another, and now we can sort of subscribe to social media that will both reinforce that, but also the social media companies themselves are um, using our biases against us in order to keep us on their platform, even if they can only do it by driving us crazy. I, I think the key to this is sort of, you know, a term that I think you and I both use, which is bias, right? in, in critical voter, the very first sort of chapter, before I get into logic, before I get into language skills or uh, information literacy, any of these other subjects is bias, but it is, you know, how you can sort of identify it and contend with it, because I'd say, we don't really necessarily have a critical thinking crisis, you know, or a crisis of fake news, we have a crisis of bias and bias news, right? We are all subject to biases for the simple fact that we're human beings, right? There's sort of cognitive biases that are likely have been hardwired into our brain's revolution, the most pernicious of these being confirmation bias, the tendency to accept and believe things that already conform to what you already believe and reject information that does not. So I think uh, these bubbles, these self-sorted communities, uh, social media, um, both you know what we choose to um, engage in, in social media but also what social media companies try to force onto us, they're all there to play off of our cognitive weaknesses, particularly confirmation bias. And so to a large extent, critical thinking is a way for individuals to use a set of very powerful techniques that help you better understand the world and make better decisions. But I think what they largely do is act as a check on confirmation bias. They don't eliminate it because as I said, it may be part of our human wiring, but if we can identify it, be honest about it, do our best to uh, at least control for it, that is a enormous kind of step in the right direction. The analogy I like to use is science, right? there's, there's. People think about science as some special thing engaged with by special people, but it's really, if you think about it, it is primarily a culture designed to limit the damage of confirmation bias. Mm. You know, through peer review, through sharing data, through sharing results, there's a check on people believing false things. And scientists do believe false or at least wrong things all the time, but within the culture of science, there's ways to... Uh, counter that. Mm
2: -hmm. And so
1: um, in many ways, the critical thinking project is how can we get some of those advantages of minimizing confirmation bias in areas outside of science so that we can progress socially as fast as we progressed scientifically and technically over the last several centuries.
0: Neuromarketing, psychology that influences consumer behavior. Do you have any examples of adverts which you can point to and say like this was a great advert for this or i remember seeing an advert which elicited this these emotions through like this process this was in a great example of this and don't worry you can give an american example even though i'm british and i might not uh, ha- pick up on your like advertising culture that you've had there <laughs> you can still go ahead don't worry <laughs>
3: thanks thank you um one excellent example i'm going to use I'm going to use two, actually. So, one one of the most famous ad campaigns of all time, The Most Interesting Man in the World. Have you seen
0: that? <laughs> yeah, that one I do know.
3: Yeah, yeah, that, one, that one's pretty big. So, the idea behind that, it perfectly empties the role that empathy and, and mirror neurons play because you see this guy who is the most interesting man in the world. I mean, he's uh, jet skiing, he's got beautiful, interesting people all around him, he's got wine you know wine and whiskey oh actually rather it's always Dos of because that's what he drinks <laughs> but, but he's he's got alcohol and these beautiful uh fireplaces and paintings and so on behind him so what happens here is you you see this commercial and you go wow like i want to be like him you don't actually think that or maybe you do i mean the, the commercial is that good that maybe you consciously are like i want to be that guy but the idea is that you kind of mirror that feeling and you go i want to be sophisticated i want to be interesting i want to have cool experiences and then it's a simple jump from okay this guy's drinking dosa keys i should be drinking dosa keys so that's one really good example another one that is more focused on the emotional aspect not necessarily mirroring but just getting to feel strong emotions and to act on them apple's 1984 commercial have you seen that i'm not sure i don't think so so this is this is an excellent commercial it was it aired in 1984 which is the year of the upon book 1984 by George Orwell and what they did was they they reimagined a scene from that book where they have they're in a movie theater there's hundreds you know hundreds of people in this movie theater they're all wearing the same exact clothes everything is completely gray and there's this big brother speaking to them and saying oppressive things you know we basically we own your life you know yada yada and a person runs through the middle of the theater with a massive hammer and dramatic music starts playing, throws the hammer through the screen, breaking all of these people free from their chains. And it just goes, Apple coming out with the new Mac. So this was the first, this is when they launched their the, the very first Mac computer. And this commercial blew up, it, it it launched it. And the reason is because people felt like they were being freed from the oppressive chains of the technology they currently had. And the Mac was revolutionary in so many ways, but the commercial, perfectly illustrated that and people felt that emotion of freedom when they looked at apple and they bought millions of macintoshes now we have apple one of the trillion dollar companies
0: yeah i can understand why with advertising like that yeah they're very famous for for having incredible advertising campaigns and definitely you can see the the success they've had is a byproduct of that so (laughs) congrats on them um in your opinion What further research needs to be done to advance our understanding of how to effectively use neuroscience to improve advertising?
3: So, in terms of further research, there is so much left to do in both neuroscience and advertising because neuroscience is extremely young as a field and the technology that we have to measure is, one, really hard to get because it's so rare and most of it is used for medical research. I remember when I was doing research at at Rutgers, there were lines in order to get like an FMRI machine, which is kind of like the best. It allows you to see the brain in real time as you're actually doing things. And that's really the only thing you can do for advertising because you need people to be looking at ads as you're studying them, right? So you sometimes have to wait years to get these machines. So I think the first thing that needs to be done is tech needs to become cheaper and it needs to be more available. Uh, I know that's kind of a cop-out, so I'll go into like what actual research to be done. <laughs> so there are three kind of big fields that I like. One is eye tracking, as I was mentioning earlier, and that's also partially because I did a bunch of research with, with eye tracking. Um, mm-hmm. Two, so memory. Memory is really, really important um, for advertising. There's an idea of brand recall, which is essentially just how deeply you can lodge your brand into someone's brain so that when they have the need that you solve for, they think of you instead of the 300 other options that you have the memory is really important to get more research because the more we learn about memory itself and how it functions in the brain, the more we can use it in, in advertising. So one of the quick things I've mentioned emotion a lot was because it's super relevant. The more that we know about emotion because emotion is very much attached to memory. So the more that we learn about how to trigger strong emotions, the more we can lodge brands in, in memory. Um, so that's, that's one piece and technology and then i wanted to touch on my favorite research since Go for I, it. I i kind of skipped over it and i think this is a direction that both neuroscience and advertising are still not necessarily behind on but could move a lot in this direction there's a paper that was recently published called the glasgow norms the glasgow norms is the most recent and the most complete attempt at rating words on different aspects that essentially culminate in cognitive load. So I mentioned cognitive load earlier. Basically what that is, is how hard it is for your brain to process something. Uh, And the faster that you can process, the more you like whatever that thing is. That's like a really, really, really simple heuristic, really oversimplifying it. But essentially, if your brain can process a sentence super, super fast, like you don't have to think at all about it, it just happens then you can get into system one and it feels good to process that information. So system one is like, this is a good thing. That's the heuristic. So the Glasgow norms rates thousands of words on, on nine scales. There's arousal, there's balance, like positive, negative, dominance, concreteness, imageability, which is how easy it is to imagine, age of acquisition, semantic size, which is actually just the size of the object that the word refers to and gender association so each of these correlates positively or negatively with the time it takes your brain to process the word for example age of acquisition right the younger you learned a word the faster you process it because it's so deeply ingrained in your memory uh on the other hand concreteness right the more abstract a word is the less concrete it is the harder it is for your brain to process because you have to conceptualize rather than immediately get an image in your head
0: The Psychedelic Renaissance, with the former VP of Content at High Times.
4: I also want to ask you about the wider attitudes about the changing tide of of psychedelics. And having spent quite a few years in the space, you will have been witness to not necessarily, I mean, I don't know if you would agree, but like how much more popular psychedelic use is becoming in certain circles that might not have been attracted to it before, be it through people microdosing because they think it improves productivity or people going to South America and doing ayahuasca retreats with indigenous communities or just general guided um, psychedelic therapy sessions. How have you seen that tide change over the last few years and where do you see it going?
2: That's a great question. And My perception, and it's just a perception, is that it's a yes and answer here. So on the one hand, the rate at which people are consuming anything that's mind-altering, and that could be coffee, okay, or chocolate, or opioids, or psilocybin, or sugar, right? Anything that is a mind-altering substance. The rate is not different. Because we've been consuming things like ayahuasca and peyote for thousands of years. And then, of course, through the modern age and technology, there's new substances, new analogs, new things that get turned into other things. And it's all about supply when it comes down to it. But I'm not sure that the rate has changed. But certainly culturally, yes, the popularity is becoming something different. And it ultimately is becoming more accepted, which is amazing. But you have to think back to the late 60s and 70s when people were taking, like, dropping acid in San Francisco in large groups of people out in the open. Like, that's one data point, but that's a pretty intense data point to say that even during that period, they were even more widely accepted than they are now, maybe. Because then there's events like Burning Man, which, of course, they don't promote drug use at all, but, you know. It's definitely a place where people go and consume substances and like tune in and drop out. So to get back to your question though, I'm super encouraged by the increased rate of the organized consumption of psychedelics. You know, when I was doing it as a teenager and an early young adult, this was all intuitive. This was all from my own network and very much not in like a fully intentional way outside of my own personal internal wisdom. I've always consumed these things intentionally like 95% of the time because I've always had a deep reverence for them. But that's not the case with a lot of people. And I have noticed, especially in the West Coast, so it depends on where you are geographically, but in the West Coast, it's widely accepted to go and consume psychedelics in a journey space with other like-minded people and a facilitator who creates a situation where you're setting an intention and you're being extremely mindful and you're really safe for the most part, I hope. There's a lot of this like journey recreational world that far outnumbers any medical or research world. But the the situations I've been lucky enough to be a part of have all been safe. And they really, it's like an education to the consumer about How to have reverence for these substances so that you don't tip over the edge into the murky waters of overconsumption or hurting other people, hurting yourself. So that's definitely increasing. And, And a point I like to make about this sort of like division between medical research and like recreation is that the recreational world, if you were to just group all consumers, psychedelic consumers into two buckets, and it's, you're either a part of a research study, or you consume occasionally, or you have consumed before in your life, outside of a research study, the recreational world is so, so vastly outweighs the research world that we would be remiss and bad scientists to not have open arms to that world and capture the data, the data points and the, the wisdom that has been collected. Because ultimately, it's like the substances are the same in general. And then we, you know, we could talk about quality in another conversation, but the substances are just like the inanimate objects and the, and the behavior around consuming them is what we disagree on or we agree on. And that's really a human problem and has nothing to do with these natural substances themselves or mother nature, as I like to say.
4: Yeah, I think that's a great point. Like when you compare the value that's been gained from all of the recreational or non-medical instances of use versus the clinical trials, obviously that's gonna be way more just because they've not been done in, a legitimate medical setting doesn't mean that they should be ignored. So yeah, I think it's it's really important to acknowledge that. But touching on the research, I want to ask, like, what is exciting you at the moment? What kind of trials have you been paying attention to? And, and yeah, what's getting you most excited?
2: Uh, well, I wish I had more time to like actually read the studies. That's an interesting point to make because the whole point of well I'm sorry, one of the main points was to take this research that was being created at the collegiate level and aggregate that in a way to a mainstream consumer, because most people are not going consit- to sit and consume information in that way. So I have lots of scientists and PhDs who filtered that information for me and then for our consumers. But I think what's interesting to me more than one particular study is the vastness of how many are popping up seems like every week now because that's su- such a different landscape than what we saw in cannabis and i think something that's on the top of my mind because we're doing a a free live bicycle day event on april 19th to raise money and awareness for a um a local psychedelic charity is lsd lsd research right this is like this amazingly potent super substance that was accidentally found in a lab, or accidentally synthesized into what it is from ergot, its original form, um, in a lab in the late 30s by Albert Hoffman. While he was he and his um, research partners were looking for substances to help with blood circulation, people who had blood circulation issues. And this sort of like seemingly harmless substance at the time that was created out of an intent to solve a real medical problem for humans turned into like the sort of cultural hero or anti-hero because of, you know, the Tim Leary's of the world, etc. And then just we lost a bunch of years because it became demonized as this like super scary thing, whether that was true or not, for the most part, it's not. And we lost so many years of being able to get back into the lab to research LSD or similar properties, chemical properties, and how they can help people. And so LSD research, for example, right now is very limited to Switzerland, Basel, Switzerland, to be specific. And yet, in some studies, LSD is shown to um, positively affect anxiety and depression alongside psilocybin more so than ketamine, a substance that is grouped in with psychedelics. Mm, depends on who you ask to see if it's you know, if it's actually a hallucinogen, but that's legal when prescribed under a doctor's care in the US, at least in certain states. So I'm really excited about LSD and potential future research with that substance because I I believe in it and I believe in its ability in that framework, right? In that medical scientific framework to be able to be shifted and pulled apart and manipulated in a way that could actually help people from on the pharmaceutical level. Right. And that's a totally different conversation than ayahuasca. That's more on in the native spiritual non-scientific realm that we sort of touched on earlier and that's okay too right it's like the western world meets eastern world north meets south and together since ultimately we're all really the same we're all one together we can come up with like a million different solutions to solve human suffering and how amazing is that you know
0: sex robots in cells and porn addiction with neuroscientists researching human sexual behavior. I remember hearing a story in Houston about Houston stopping the opening of a robot brothel. And to be honest, that doesn't surprise me. If anything, I was surprised that they even thought they'd open up in Texas (laughs) at all. Yeah, like I was like, wow, that takes guts. But um, this is, I've also checked out like some Vice documentaries. I know they've got some, some on this subject. And of course, there's other areas of the world, like Asia, where this like robot brothels aren't really like that uncommon, or it seems certainly not like Texas. But I'd be really interested to know, do you think that these types of brothels will become increasingly in common and maybe even one day open up in Texas?
5: (laughs) I don't know what their likelihood is in Texas, having grown up there. It seems like a tough market indeed, but robots in general kind of strike me as uh, on the one hand very much in their infancy so we may see this shift as the technology improves but they're kind of like the vibrators you know they're a new sexual option and something that might be adopted by a certain segment of the population or at some particular level but It's going to be those that, you know, are affordable, that people can consume privately, I think, that are more likely to be adopted or to change. The idea of going to brothels, I think, is going to continue to be a bridge too far for a majority of folks. So I have a hard time imagining them being extremely popular in the long term, uh, potentially short term.
0: What do you think, like, the, the psychology is behind people wanting this rather than human beings? Like, for example, why would someone choose to go for this over the interactions that we currently have with other human beings?
5: There are a number of reasons people choose to widen their sexual repertoire and the best predictor of that in general is having a high sex drive. (laughs) So people for example who are more likely to use sex toys at all um, or vibrators in particular or to view pornography all have a higher sex drive and are higher sensation-seeking in terms of personality. So my expectation is that would be kind of the same for the robots. That is, by and large, they are going to be experimented with by people who like to experiment sexually because they have lots of sexual interests and sexual tastes. And there will probably be some as well there for folks who can't access partners other ways. So for example, you know, people who may have access issues through disability or through the uh, society's perception of their disability. So, you know, there may be some provision there, but I think probably the largest consumers are likely to be the largest consumers of other sex devices. That is just people who have a high sex drive and are really sensation-seeking folks.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, you mentioned, you kind of said like uh, about... A greater access for those that people are well how what do, what were your words exactly then you said you said about like um for people that perceive them in society or oh, I, I apologize yes <laughs> i don't want to i don't want to like quote you and say you just said yeah, this yeah. and then you're like mm, that's not exactly what i said <laughs> you mentioned about like uh, it being more accessible for certain people in society which perhaps don't have an outlet for their sexual desires is that is that a fair um, representation of what you just said
5: Exactly. So some folks that for actual physiological reasons may have difficulty having intercourse in the way that people traditionally think about being sexual with another partner, Uh, you know, so it could be truly a disability issue. But then we also have a number of cases where there are groups that say, you know, we're perceived as being asexual and we're not, like we have sexual needs, but it's very difficult for those folks to get partners. So that could be older adults, it could be developmentally disabled who still want to have sexual interactions, but you know, find it difficult to convince people that they're able to consent and have interests that are valid. So I don't know that this is a a solution or something I would recommend per se, but it certainly could be an access for them to have interactions.
0: We have a show in the UK, and I'm not particularly proud of it, but um, (laughs) it seems to be quite popular. And I think it humanizes people with disabilities to some extent, but I've never really watched it. It's called The Undateables.
5: Oh, no. (laughs)
0: yeah I know it's one of those shows that I'm like I don't know how this survives but I think it must humanize them in a way that makes the show acceptable but essentially it is people that struggle to find partners because of some kind of disability so that comes to mind when i think of this but also what i was thinking about is less the kind of physical disabilities and even it's more personality traits because i'm not sure how familiar you are with the term incel yes probably know of it given your your background but i would be really interested to know what you think robots as sexual romantic partners how they will impact like members of the incel community and the incel community in general
5: Incels are interesting because their self-perception of who they are is, I think, quite different from researchers' perception. So there hasn't been a ton of research done on that that group, but there has been some. And I think from a scientific perspective, we see them as kind of hyper-masculinized, really believing in old values of sexuality and dominance. And I think they see themselves as just persecuted victims of society. Yeah. So we can imagine why they would have a hard time gaining partners. You know, that is, they think they're fine how they are. They need not to change, but to stay exactly who they are. And so that is going to make it difficult for them to gain a sexual partner. And I can imagine from that perspective, yeah, these other aspects, whether it's toys or robots, you know, might be something that would give them access to sexual pleasure. But I also don't think they would accept that, you know, my uh, suspicion is a robot or a sex toy is something also that would be against their kind of masculine ideal. That is, we shouldn't have to do this. You know, this is we're owed more than this. Mm. Uh, so I don't know if they would consume in private. <laughs> you know, Maybe that's the only way that community might consume them more or might interact more with robots. I would be very surprised though, if it ever became a public outlet for them that they would advocate for such a thing, because it seems to be kind of against their masculine ideal that they deserve live women. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think, yeah, it's kind of like an admission or an acceptance of defeat, I suppose, if they go down that option. It's almost like, well, they can't get the real thing, so they just have to accept or go for this. This is the next best option.
5: Yeah, they're not accepting it now. Why would that change? Yeah. So, I <laughs> don't know.
0: The science behind learning soft skills and hard skills with neuroscience specialist Todd Maddox. What is the difference between soft skills and hard skills, and why do you think they're important?
6: So... First thing, full disclosure, I had never heard those terms when I was an academic. And when I first heard the terms hard skills and soft skills about four years ago at a, at a learning technology conference, I was like, what the heck is this? What 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 is a hard school? And, and, and more importantly, what is a soft skill? I mean, these, these terms don't tell me anything. So I started digging around in it. And looking up definitions and, and studying and such. And 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 here's here's my take. Hard skills are technical skills. So if I study mathematics and I become good at algebra, that's a hard skill. If I study R or Python or uh, statistical programming languages, that's a hard skill. Uh, if I learn how to use you know Microsoft Office, those are hard skills. They're about knowledge. They're about Information. They're about facts, and again, they're about knowing, you know, what they're about. So they're kind of like the vocabulary in, in in our language analogy. Soft skills, which, by the way, I think that's an absolutely terrible term for what it represents. And to be honest, I haven't met anybody in learning and development who who likes the term. If you look at what soft skills are though, I think a better term and a term that I use is people skills. So it's the ability to show active listening, to not be looking at your phone while somebody's talking to you. It's about effective communication, which involves listening to people, which involves communicating differently with different people, using different communication styles. It's about showing empathy. You know, It's about literally being able to walk a mile in somebody else's shoes and understand where they're coming from. And the ability to sort of rein in unconscious biases and not let those not let your unconscious biases influence how you behave, let's say, in the workplace. So hard skills are about knowledge and information and facts. They're about knowing what people skills are about behavior and they're about emotion. They're about knowing how to do things and about having a feel for situations. And, And people use the term situational awareness, which is actually quite accurate. So it, it's about what we do, how we do it, and our intent. And I would argue that people skills, in fact, there's, there's data on this. People skills are way more important to job success and, frankly, success in the world than hard skills. You can always train up on a new hard skill. And, in fact, you can train people skills, and, and we'll, get into, we'll get into that and how challenging it is. But it's, it's really, really important for success. And unfortunately, we don't do a very good job of, of training these, these people skills.
0: And I, I would love to get into that now. I mean, I'm really curious to know, like you said, hard skills is knowledge based. So from my perception, it's quite easy to learn. However, I... Definitely think there are certain things in this world which I probably would find harder than others, just because of my natural disposition. Yep. And then soft skills definitely sounds like something which is more personality-based. But I know there's really no black and white answer to this. How can these skills be learned, and is one harder to learn than the other? Would you say?
6: Yeah. Okay. So let's let's, let's get into a, a few details here. I think for, first let let me set the stage, and talk about basically three learning systems in the brain. So one is what Mm -hmm. I call the what system. That's the knowledge system. That's the cognitive system. And really that's the hard skills or the technical skills system. And you're right that some knowledge is easy to learn. I mean, differential equations is not easy to learn. Calculus is not easy to learn. Whereas geometry maybe is, you know, is a little bit easier, at least for some people. Um, so the difficulty of, of hard skill learning definitely varies. But the system in the brain that does that learning is what I call the what system. It's the cognitive system. And again, it involves the prefrontal cortex and the the medial temporal lobes. It's it's the system where you mentally rehearse things, you work out math problems, ultimately to store it in long-term memory. So that's one system. And really that's the system that most people think about when they think about learning. And frankly, that's the system that gets targeted almost exclusively in education and training. But there are two other systems in the brain that are completely distinct from that cognitive system that matter one is the behavioral learning system and i call this the how system so it's this system that learns how to do things you know it's one thing to know what you need to do to build something or to operate a machine it's another thing to have the behavioral repertoire to actually operate that machine to, to know how completely different system in the brain it's deep down in the brain it's called the striatum, and this system learns to, simply through reward and punishment and, and this is you know, you've heard of B.F. Skinner mm-hmm. from your psychology degree. I mean, B.F. Skinner studied behavioral learning. Yep. He put an animal in a context. They generated a behavior, and he either rewarded it or punished it, and he could actually change their behavior and build these behavioral repertoires in animals just through reward and punishment. That's this how system. That's the stride, and that's the behavioral system. The third system is an emotional learning system. I call this the feel system. This is the system that helps you develop empathy that uh, is affected by your personality, as you mentioned. This system really develops that situational awareness. Long story short, hard skills and technical skill learning is mediated by that cognitive system, the what system. People skills require engagement of all three systems. You need to not only know what like empathy is, but you need to know how to feel empathy and you need to know how to show empathy. So the reason that people skills, soft skills are so much harder to train is because effective soft skills training requires that you broadly engage three systems in the brain, whereas traditional hard skill training requires that you only engage one system in the brain. That's that's basically it.
0: Okay. say, for example, if I didn't have the right the right people skills and I came to you and I was like, I need to improve this or I need help. How would you help me or how would you help a a client of yours
6: yeah so the typical you know the traditional way that people get trained let's say an employee at a corporation who's getting training on you know whether it's hard skills or whether it's people skills is going to be through e-learning right computer-based training and there are hundreds hundreds of companies out there learning and development companies that build software that allow you to learn you know, anytime, anywhere, right? On your mobile device, on your tablet, on your laptop, 24 seven, they use micro learning, so short bursts of training spread out over time, they test you. Basically these e-learning platforms, the good ones at least, very effectively engage the what system, the cognitive system, so they can train the hard skills. Many of them use the exact same approach to train people skills, and that's why they're not effective. If you're gonna try to train people skills with an e-learning platform, then the key is to either build or look for an e-learning platform that uses what's called storytelling. So if I wanna teach you about empathy, I could send you a a training module that gives you the definition of empathy and gives a bunch of verbal descriptions. That's just teaching you the definition of empathy. That's teaching you the what? or I could build a video of a story where managers are interacting with employees, employees are interacting with each other, and you're seeing situations where, let's say a manager is showing empathy to an employee, and you're seeing that that goes really well, and the employee is confident and satisfied, and you might see then other situations where empathy is not being shown. So the idea is to, is to embed the training in a story. That is not easy to do. This is where, what, where where I argue that science and art really are at the intersection. Um, but if you build good storytelling content, and it could be video, it could be animation, whatever, the key is that what you're doing is you're drawing the learner in to that learning scenario so that they see themselves as, as part of the learning they see themselves as from the perspective of multiple actors within the story. What this is going to do is engage the emotional learning center, that feel center, which is going to be fairly effective for building people skills. Now, those exist. There are companies that do this and do this quite well, not very many, but there are companies that do this. What I am going to say though, is I believe that the future of people skills training and for that matter, hard skills training are the immersive technologies. These are technologies like virtual reality and augmented reality. And this is a technology that I have tongue in cheek immersed myself in over the last four years. These technologies are amazing because in virtual reality and in augmented reality, all of these learning systems in the brain are engaged simultaneously. In virtual reality, I can literally walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. Okay. I don't just read what it's like to be African American, transgender person. I can actually become that person for five minutes. I can then, you know, be ridiculed or or whatever, be treated the way that they might be treated poorly or well. That doesn't mean that I, you know, doesn't mean that I fully understand, but in a five minute interaction where I become somebody else and experience life through their eyes and their ears, it's a game changer. And it can fundamentally alter my thinking much more than just reading verbal descriptions.
0: This episode is brought to you by Publicize, a digital PR company that grows businesses online presence. And for a limited time only, exclusive to Brains Brainspike-backed listeners, you can receive an SEO assessment as part of your package for any tier of service at no extra charge with this special promotion. To find out more, visit publicize.co slash BBB. We are finished for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And as ever, you can subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcast from. You can follow us on YouTube and go to social.co to check out all of our episodes and articles on topics just like this. We hope you join us again soon. And until next time, take care of yourself.